Well, good morning. If you're a guest, I am Blake. I'm the, the lead pastor at Southside. Glad you're here. We are nearing the end of a series we've called Questioning Christianity and asking hard questions and often giving hard answers from God's Word. And this morning we come to one that is particularly controversial in our current context. And the objection is, aren't Christians homophobic? I mean, come on, look around, turn on the television. Aren't you on the wrong side of history? Famous 20th century atheist Bertrand Russell said this. He said, the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude toward sex. And that's going to be increasingly the opinion of those who aren't followers of Jesus. And specifically, we're looking this morning in one area of sexuality, though we could talk about many, and honestly, in the church, we need to be talking about it more and more. But this morning, specifically, the issue of homosexuality. It is the hot issue of our day, especially since the Supreme Court decision of June 2015. And it is really incredible, and many of you will know this better than I, it's incredible how swift the change has come in American culture. It has happened so fast. The APA, the American Psychiatric Association, classified homosexuality as a mental disorder in its Bible, its, its Bible, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. And it wasn't removed until 1987. In 1973, they changed the name from homosexuality to what they called sexual orientation disturbance because there was disagreement within the organization, and then they removed that in 1987. And so just think about that. Just 31 years ago, it was considered a mental illness. Our culture has seen a massive transformation, hasn't it? And there is extreme confusion on these matters today. Maybe you heard about this. It was probably a month ago. Sesame Street felt the need to put out on their Twitter account. I don't know who follows Sesame Street on Twitter, but they tweeted that they needed to clarify that Bert and Ernie do not have a sexual orientation. And we are so confused that such a thing has to be tweeted. And of course, they caught all kinds of flack for drawing that line and they end up having to remove the remove the tweet. The picture of the modern family is now considered incomplete without at least one homosexual couple. Let me just add a footnote here that discipleship is happening all the time. Every person in this room, in fact, every person who exists is being discipled. If you or your children, your grandchildren spend more time on screens than you do in the Bible, you are being shaped. You are being discipled. In a world where God exists and where Satan exists, there is no neutrality. And we've got to know that. You are being taught all the time by something or someone to accept certain things and certain viewpoints. Ephesians 2 would say it's following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. A new picture of normal is being painted every day and without even knowing it. Our moral intuitions are being refashioned every single day. And it affects worldviews. It affects how we view the world. For example, there was a recent study asking Americans what percentage of the country they believed were homosexual. homosexual. Just asking. It was a fairly large survey. What percentage do you think of America is homosexual? And the answer was 23%. Average American thinks that 23%, one-fourth of the U.S. population 
is homosexual. In reality, there's a couple major studies. One is dated, so you'd expect it to be low, but it was a Laman study in 1994, and they found that 1.4% of women and 2.8% of men were of homosexual or bisexual orientation. Gallup did a more recent poll, and they found that 3.8%, so less than 4% of the U.S. population identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. It's not what the media portrays, is it? And so I think we just need to be aware of that. Because of the way we are being discipled by media, we greatly, the average American greatly overestimates the population in America. So it affects how we view the world. It affects churches, specifically churches that aren't led well, churches with pastors who lack a biblical backbone. And many teachers and professing Christians say, we've got to adapt. If we're going to remain relevant, the church must conform to the culture. But has been, as has been said, he who marries the spirit of the age will soon find himself a widower. Here at Southside, we're not going to change scripture for the sake of culture. If we can change God's word on something that is so clear, what's next? If the Bible's wrong about its sexual ethic, why not is it wrong about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let's just all eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We will not soften the biblical message to make it more palatable to postmodern people. I appreciate the way Russell Moore, Southern Baptist leader, puts it. He says, we cannot build Christian churches on a sub-Christian gospel. People who don't want Christianity don't want almost Christianity. So we've got to remain clear, especially on those areas where the culture is attacking and pushing the hardest. I love the way Martin Luther put it. You know, I don't have a complete sermon if I don't quote Luther at least once. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. It is becoming a watershed issue over churches that will take God at his word and those that will conform to culture instead. And so we as a church, we've got to get used to being uncomfortable. We've got to get used to being different as the church. Our sexual ethic is different. It is counter-cultural. It is at odds with the majority of Western culture. Increasingly, we must view the church as a contrast society. We're just different. We don't fit into the mold of the world, Romans 12.1. Here's how one New Testament scholar puts it. He says, the church needs to stop seeing themselves as participants in the normal social and economic structures of their city and to imagine themselves instead as members of the eschatological, it just means end time, people of God, acting corporately in a way that will prefigure and proclaim the kingdom of God. We are the kingdom community. We're unlike the world. And so as 1 John 3 said in the first century, don't be surprised when the world hates you. It's just going to be on the rise. And I know this is uncomfortable for some of you for several reasons, but specifically we, because this is such a watershed issue, we have got to be talking about sexuality more in the church. It is God's idea. Sex within marriage is God's idea. He designed the whole thing. 
It's a sign of his creativity. It is a sign of his goodness. Can I get a witness? It's a sign given for reproduction. It's given for unity, isn't it? It is some of the sweetest gifts of God, companionship, a means to avoid sexual immorality, and it's for our enjoyment. And so we need to be speaking of the positivity of it, of God's idea, but his good gifts are increasingly being distorted. And so that's what we also need to address, both the positive and the negative. And so I want us to ask really two things this morning. One, what does God say about it? Number two, how can we minister? Number one, what does God say about it? And this just has to be said loud and clear. The Bible's teaching on homosexuality is unambiguous. It is clear and it is consistent. It teaches that homosexuality is contrary to God's design for human flourishing. Everywhere it is mentioned, it is prohibited and it is condemned. Though increasingly there are Christians, false teachers or bad teachers perhaps, that try to distort what the Bible says. And they try to make the Bible actually defend the practice of homosexuality. And they're, they're on the rise and some of them are quite clever. Some of them are sophisticated. We won't get into those weeds, but I do want to mention a, a couple of them as we go. Some will try to reinterpret the passages we're looking at and say, well, scripture is just speaking to homosexual acts and not orientation. And this is an argument from silence. Scripture does not distinguish orientation from acts. When the word forbids homosexual activity, there are no qualifications. According to the Bible, all expressions of homosexuality are sinful. And the ancients knew of orientation. Homosexuality is not new. It was rampant in the first century. They may not have called it orientation, but they were aware of it. Others will say that when scripture condemns homosexuality, it's actually not just a blanket condemnation. It's talking about a couple of specific things, either what's known as pederasty, that is with older men with younger boys, and so it's forced, or perhaps master-slave forced, in other words, rape. But again, the authors of scripture are aware of that reality. It was not new, and there's a word for it, and the word for it was not used in these passages. We'll see some of that as we look at them. And so there, there are other arguments, and students in particular, I know some of you uh, hear some of these, and just know I'd love to sit down and walk with you and show why the way they try to evade it simply doesn't work. I'd also love to give you some resources to help you work through what the Bible actually says, because there are clever ways to try to get around these passages. But what I, what I appreciate is when these New Testament scholars are actually just honest. And there's one world-renowned New Testament scholar that if you are in that field, you know this name. I've read a few of his books. You will have read them if you're in this field. He's world-renowned. And here's what he says. He, he's a professor at Emory, and he just says this. He just says, honestly, quote, I think it's more important, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. I think that viewpoint is wrong and actually very dangerous, but I appreciate his honesty. Let's not try to rewrite scripture. Let's not try to distort these commands. He just said, we're just going to reject it and go with me over God. It's an authority issue. 
What will be our authority, God's word or our own feelings? What seems reasonable to us or what God's word says, that's the issue. Will God have final say in matters of sexuality? So I want us to look briefly at most and dig into a couple, seven passages. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot some of these down that we won't turn to. But the first encounter is in Genesis 19. If you've grown up in the church, you know the story, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where we get the word sodomites. And what you'll find people doing is saying, well, actually, that sin was not about homosexuality. Again, I'm thinking of liberal Bible teachers, and they will say the sin of Sodom was actually in hospitality, and that's true. Ezekiel tells us that. That is one of the issues with Sodom and Gomorrah, but so was their sexual immorality. In fact, Jude in the New Testament says this, alluding to Genesis 19. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So it's first mentioned and condemned, Genesis 19. Second, it's condemned in the law of Moses. Now, as New Covenant Christians, we are not under the law of Moses. That's why sometimes if people appeal to Leviticus 18 and say homosexuality is an abomination, smart, smart unbelievers will say, what about the next verse? It says you can't shave or something like that. Well, we're not under that law as New Covenant Christians. That was a law given to Israel, but it is worth mentioning to say that God's mind on the matter has always been the same. Leviticus 18.22 says you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Third passage I just want to read is 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 10. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to to sound doctrine. And so here we have a list of sins and homosexuality is one of them very clearly. It is one of the sins to be repented of, but it is a sin to be repented of. Fourth, we have the gospels. And sometimes people will say, well, Jesus never spoke to this issue. Jesus never talked about it explicitly. I call it the silence of the lamb argument. And he didn't, it's right. But here's the thing, he didn't need to. He was a Jewish man who upheld the Jewish law. He didn't speak explicitly to a whole host of issues. He never condemned wife beating. Do you think Jesus was okay with beating a wife? Of course not. He didn't condemn incest. He didn't condemn bestiality or even rape. Does that mean he approved? Of course not. According to the Jewish framework, homosexuality was an uncontroversial sin. In other words, there was no debate about it. It didn't need to be mentioned. Everybody agreed. Just like incest and child abuse and bestiality are a host of other sins. But even if Jesus had said nothing about it, we as Christians don't merely follow the red letters of the Bible. We follow all of it. We follow what the apostle says. We don't pit Peter and Paul against Jesus. Peter and Paul are apostles of Jesus Christ. But Jesus did speak to it, actually. We won't turn there, but Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23 Jesus speaks of sexual immorality. It's this broad word. The word you'll, you'll hear familiarity in it. The word is pornaya. And it's a broad word that refers to a whole host of types, including homosexuality. Then in Matthew 19, Jesus 
says the only alternative to marriage between one man and one woman is celibacy. He quotes Genesis 2.24. God's design for marriage, one man with one woman for a lifetime. And Jesus says that and only that is the God-given context for human sexual expression. Therefore, same-sex marriage is ruled out. Fifth passage, and I want us to turn here. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans 118. Let's read together. Romans 118 to the end of the chapter. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. Literally there it is, men in men. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice the three exchanges here in the heart of this passage. The first one is there in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Then in verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And then in verse 26, they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Just as it is fundamentally unnatural to worship created things rather than worship the one who created them, 
So homosexuality is inescapably unnatural. It is contrary to nature. It is contrary to the fixed nature of things. It is contrary to biology and anatomy. It's against nature. And again, some Bible teachers, this is one of the passages, will say, well, Paul's actually just condemning pederasty, that of older men with younger boys. That's the only issue here. They try to get, again, very clever. There's books and books written on this. The problem is it just doesn't work. He's not only condemning those relationships. That's what we call eisegesis, reading into the passage. What we want to do is exegesis. Let's let the text give us the meaning without trying to go in and read in it or read behind it. It's not just pederasty because he mentions lesbians as well. And there is no ancient record of women and younger girls. And then in verse 27, he says, they were consumed with passion for one another. This is mutual. This is not forced. And again, there's a word for pederasty that he could have used if that's all he meant. Paul is talking about male and female homosexual actions. It can't be written off as anything else. But notice it's not the only sin. It's not the worst sin. There in verses 29 to 31, there's all kinds of sins. The sin of homosexuality comes from the same heart as the sin of covetousness or envy or strife or deceit or gossip or disobedience to parents. It's just highlighted here as a vivid and graphic example of idolatry, of exchanging what is natural for the unnatural. And it's a sign of God's judgment. Notice that. It started that way in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. And so when you have a culture obsessed with the promotion of homosexuality, you see the wrath of God being revealed on a society. And I want us to hear the warning of that last verse. After speaking of all these sins and then highlighting homosexuality, notice what he says there in verse 32. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is what the world wants you to do, friends. Maybe not do it, but give approval. Don't put yourself in the place of God and approve what he forbids. Sixth passage I want you to turn here to. It's the next, it's the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that same broad term, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Corinth was similar to America in a whole lot of ways. They were just obsessed with sexuality. And the, the slogan of Corinth is really the slogan of America. And it was, all things are lawful for me. We see that a few times in the book. In other words, I have the right to do anything I want. We desperately need to hear this warning. If you hear nothing else from this morning, hear what God is saying in this verse. What you do with your body sexually can determine your destiny eternally. 
Do you not know that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this warning here is a warning for the church in American culture. Do not be deceived. The enemy through media wants to deceive you. Do not be deceived. He says, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. In the original here, for men who practice homosexuality, your, your translation may have two nouns, or actually two nouns, and it's actually quite graphic. I won't go into the etymology, but it's clear. And notice here, though, also, again, that sexual sins aren't the only serious sins. There are many, we see in this verse, that are equally damning, if not turned from. And must be taken seriously. Today, people think that sex is casual. You even hear that word, casual sex. There is no category for casual sex. People speak of a hookup culture, Netflix and chill, speaking casually. In his book, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? A really good book, short book by Kevin DeYoung. What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? He says this, it cannot be overstated how seriously the Bible treats the sin of sexual immorality. And notice, that's broader than homosexuality, but the sin. There's three or four just in that list that relate to sexual immorality. Hell is at stake. And again, on this verse, what you'll have, you'll have uh, liberal Bible teachers say that the, one of the words, at least there, it's the word for the passive partner in the action. And they'll try, try to make a case that the word, the word is malakoi, and they will make the case that it actually just means effeminate. It's not talking about homosexual practice or it's just talking about men who are effeminate. I hope you can see why that doesn't work. That would mean that God would condemn people to hell for being effeminate. Nowhere in scripture we find anything like that. This is talking about homosexual activity, not the certain personality type of a man. And again, get this, hear this. If we approve of what God forbids in this verse, we are sending people to an eternity without Christ. I want you to feel the weight of these verses. If we approve of what God forbids, those folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 1, though they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. Praise God, that's not the end of the story, though. Look at verse 11. We're all, everyone in here is sexually confused and sexually broken, but because of the gospel, we can be made sexually whole. The sin of homosexuality, like all these sins, is not inescapable. Notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Seventh verse I want us to think about, probably most importantly, is Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, we won't turn there, but it, it pictures the ultimate purpose of marriage. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says this, quoting Genesis 2 again, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The ultimate purpose of marriage, before, long before the institution of marriage 
even became a reality. God had a picture in mind, and it pictures the gospel. And we see that in Ephesians 5. And so you have the church submitting to Christ like a wife is called to submit to a husband. You have the husband, the head of the woman, just like of his wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. That only works between a man and a woman. You can't have a church-church analogy. You can't have a Christ-Christ analogy. It breaks down the very purpose of marriage, which is to point to the gospel. It destroys God's intention. And so scripture is clear. It's clear and consistent and unambiguous. And so we are here at Southside, we are deliberate Protestants. We put scripture above church tradition, though we value church tradition. And in this case, church tradition is right on with scripture. Historically, whether it's Roman Catholic, Protestant, Greek Orthodox, has been totally unanimous in its opposition to homosexual activity and homosexual marriage. It's only as of recently that this has even been a debate. And friends, what we've got to learn is that God knows best. He knows best, and we see that even with the consequences of homosexuality. If you look at studies, mental health is a huge issue among that community. Homosexuals are 200% more likely to commit suicide. And sometimes people argue, well, that's just because they're not free to be who they are in our country. First response is actually they are now increasingly, but there's also studies in places where it's been long ago, 1944, gay marriage was approved in Sweden and the, the suicide rates are actually higher there. Mental health, life expectancy is 20 to 24 years shorter. Monogamy is an extreme exception within the homosexual community, especially among men. Sexual promiscuity among gay men is approved and known, leading to destruction of all sorts of things. 75% of HIV cases in the last five years were from homosexuals. Divorce. God knows best. What he sets out is for our good. He knows. He created us. He created marriage. Fish are not restricted when they're in water. Only in water are they free to live and flourish. If fish wants freedom from the tank, it dies. This is not oppressive teaching. This is the path to life. There's a book by a, a New Testament scholar named Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill is an evangelical Christian, and he, he calls himself a gay Christian. I don't like that terminology. He has never been attracted to females his entire life. He is only attracted to men. And so for him, he knows the Bible and he follows Jesus. He knows for him that means lifelong celibacy. And here's what he writes. He says in his book, Washed and Waiting, the Christian story proclaims that all the demands of Scripture are ultimately summons, calls, invitations, beckoning us to experience true, beautiful, and good humanness. So that's what God's word says. And I want to talk in two different groups. How can we minister in our culture? How can we minister to homosexuals? I mean, first, we've got to know the Bible. We need to know, you need to know these seven passages. You need to understand what God's word says. But once we grasp the word, we need to minister with courage, wisdom, and compassion, and prayer. And I want to mention five ways that we can minister. And again, first, we need courage and boldness because you will be called hateful increasingly. There are places in the world, you probably know this, where I would get arrested for this sermon currently. I think I will see the day where churches will lose tax-exempt status or some type of tax penalty 
in my day where you will not benefit from giving to a church in terms of your taxes if we won't do same-sex marriages. I, I really am confident I'll see that day in my ministry. It will, the heat will just continue to be turned up here. And so you've got to be bold. You've got to have courage. Right now, actually this was a few years ago, 50% of the U.S. approves same-sex marriage. 50% of the U.S. You will be called a bigot. You will be persecuted verbally. Don't take it personally, but endure with patience. Count it joy. Don't be surprised. Be clear and be bold. But the second thing is be humble. We need to speak truth, and it matters what we say, but it also matters how we say it. And sadly, the church here has failed at times. Sometimes the church has been self-righteous and arrogant in its condemnation of sins that are easy to point at, like abortion and homosexuality, while not saying anything about sins that we struggle with, like greed or gossip or gluttony or divorce. We have had a tone of humility and brokenness. In other words, we haven't been gospel-centered. We haven't taught grace. We haven't shown grace. We forgot that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we've pushed homosexuals away with our harshness. And so, yes, we speak truth, but we need to speak truth with tears in our eyes. Knowing we are just as sinful as we've seen, these are lists of sin. And you may not struggle with homosexuality, but you struggle with the other sins. Sin is sin, and we are only Saved by the grace of God. Third thing is when sharing the gospel, keep the main thing the main thing. And this is true with anybody, not just homosexuality. Don't go there first. Go to the gospel. Start at the center, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, and work outward from there. The gospel message is what God uses to save. Not advice. Not rules, not a mode of sexuality, but an announcement because of which the world is different. An announcement that though we are sinful, we can be forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ if we will turn from our sin and trust in him. So keep the gospel front and center. Fourth thing, be hospitable. Be welcoming. Hospitality in the South is skewed. We talk about entertaining and the house has got to be just right and we're here to serve and entertain. No, hospitality biblically is opening your home and opening your life to others. And Jesus preferred the marginalized. Read the gospels. He preferred the marginalized. Remember that time where Jesus comes into a house and there's a Pharisee hosting and this prostitute runs in and falls at his feet and cries and wipes. Remember the Pharisee rebukes him. Jesus welcomes her. Sadly, the church sometimes has been more like the Pharisee than Jesus. And maybe you're here and you've experienced that. And I just want to apologize. And let me encourage you to look to Jesus and ask, are you welcome at his table? And you'll find that you are. Your past life does not disqualify you. Yet as you come to Jesus, he gives you new life and a new way of life. And then the fifth thing is just pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray for opportunities. Pray for God to do what only he can do. And I think because of our posture as a church towards this sin historically, I think there are many, like Wesley Hill, many born-again believers 
who love the Lord and want to follow his word as it is, who are same-sex attracted or perhaps just battle same-sex attraction. And they know their call to follow the Lord is lifelong celibacy. And I think because of the way our tone has been in the past, we have no place for those types of folks who struggle with same-sex attraction, just like you struggle with opposite-sex attraction or gossip or greed or whatever it is that tempts you. But they don't have an outlet. They don't have a community because they've been afraid to be open and honest about this particular sin struggle because we've shamed them. And so we need to have a place for those. Here's five ways we can minister to those who are Christians who battle same-sex attraction and realize it calls them to a life of celibacy. First thing is make it easy to talk about. It is a painful struggle. It is a grievous struggle. Affliction, And so be careful with our language. Build a culture of openness about all of our struggles and all of our weaknesses in general. A place of a gospel culture where we're not afraid to admit that we're sinners because that's why we're here. Jesus came not for the healthy but for the unhealthy, for the sick. A gospel culture where we know our sin and we know God's holiness and we know the sufficiency of Jesus. We're all battling sin. Growth in Christ is lifelong. Sanctification is progressive. I love the analogy Tim Keller used. I've used it before, but the church ought to be more like a waiting room for the ER than a job interview. You know the culture of a job interview waiting room. You've been there. Everybody's looking good. You know, they've got good posture. They're sizing up the room. They're trying to look impressive, more impressive than the next person. That should not be the church. That's antichrist. Culture of the church ought to be like the waiting room for an ER. Vastly different. You're not even really noticing people, much less trying to impress them. You're there and you need to shave, your breath stinks, and you're in your pajamas. (laughs) And you know that you're all there because you're needy and you're there to find help. No better than another. We need to build a gospel culture. We're all sinners with an all-sufficient Savior. Sam Alberry, who's another evangelical Christian, who has never been attracted to women. So he too is committed to lifelong celibate. He's got a little book called, Is God Anti-Gay? I encourage you to check it out if you're interested. Here's what he says. He needs, he says, it's a mark of a healthy church that we can talk about these things. And so we need to do all we can to encourage a culture of being real about the hard things about the Christian life. So make it easy to talk about. Number two, honor singleness. It is a gift not to be denigrated. Don't assume singles are single just because they're lazy. Be familiar with 1 Corinthians 7 and the unique opportunities that singles have. And for those singles who battle same-sex attraction, the Lord's call in their life is celibacy. And a person can be celibate and flourish, right? Paul wasn't married. Jesus himself was not married. Jesus himself was God-made flesh. He was a human And he never experienced sexual relations. And his humanity was not one bit smaller than anyone else's. His humanity was not diminished by being single. And so we need to honor singleness in the church. Third thing, we need to be the church. A person whom the Lord calls to celibacy will experience unique challenges that many of us won't experience. Loneliness, isolation, sexual temptation, often without accountability and help. And so we need to be the church. The church Christ has called us to be a family, not merely units of nuclear families driving in and out, but a family of faith, 
Homosexuals do community really well. The church needs to be a community of grace and transformation. So in this sense, singles shouldn't be single in the body of Christ. We're united to Christ. We're united to one another, the body of Christ. I want to read from Mark chapter 10. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And with Christ, there's always a side of persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus assumes for anybody, when you come to him, you will leave things behind. And the most costly are familial and relational. But he says what you will receive will be far greater. You'll receive a family, a family in Christ. Jesus says those who are my mother and my brother are those who do the will of God. One that is united around blood that is thicker than our blood, it's his blood. And so I want to ask us, could a homosexual person become a Christian and join this church and say that they have family and friends like they have never had before? And if not, we're not doing our role as a church and we're calling our Lord a liar. We need to do better at cultivating deep, intimate, soul-sharing friendships in the church. So be the church. Fourth thing Deal with biblical models of masculinity and femininity rather than cultural stereotypes. In other words, let's be biblical. From the Bible, let's show what it means to be a man or a woman and not just what culture says. And there are pendulums on, on all ends of these things. And so let's just focus on what Scripture says. You know, some of you may be the wild at heart types. You know, David killed a bear with his bare hands. Yeah, true. He also played the harp. And so he's a balanced Renaissance man. Stereotypes can be hurtful for those who don't fit. So let's remain biblical and not add to it. Fifth thing, I've already said, I want to say it again, preach the gospel. Keep Jesus central. He is what gives meaning to our lives fundamentally. People are not, contrary to what culture wants us to say, people are not their sexuality. Our identity is found in him. Sex does not give you your identity and purpose. Yes, there will be unfulfilled desires. But isn't that true of all of us? All of us are called to deny ourselves in some way. I love the title of the book, Wesley Hill. He's called Washed and Waiting. And what he's doing, he's appealing to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 specifically. And Romans 8, 23 to 25. And it's, it's a journey of his own story. Washed and waiting. And so he has struggled with his sin and many others. But, but verse 11, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. So he's washed, but he's waiting. Romans 8, 23 to 25, he's waiting. In fact, groaning along with all of creation for the redemption of our bodies when he will fight that battle no more. And in many ways, that's true of all of us. Washed and waiting. Made clean, fully forgiven, but now we live in this time between the times where we're not yet resurrected and we battle the flesh. So we wait for the full redemption of our body's resurrection. And so to answer our question, no. Historic Orthodox Christianity is not homophobic, not afraid of them. But based on the clear teaching of Scripture, we are afraid for them 
if they don't fight that sin and turn to Christ. It's the truth of God's word that moves us to speak the truth, even when it's unpopular, and then act and minister out of love, boldness, courage, compassion, and humility. And so let's, let's do better. Let's work toward that end.